Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany. Like actually the history of Germany, the beginning of Germany, we made it. I'm Travis Dow, and this is the first episode of the... Well, I mean, it's kind of the first episode. Now, wait a minute. I didn't start the history of Germany here. You could really start here. We see the beginning of a German state in this episode. But I would still encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes if you haven't, because people had been living in this land, German land, for thousands of years. So what happened to those people? And these people are Germans now? But what is German and what is not? And now if the German state started with Otto I, how did it start? Where did Otto inherit his power from? Uh, well, from Henry the Fowler. But but who is that guy? And he got his power from the Frankish king. And who are the Franks? So anyways, that's why episode one of the history of Germany is really my episode 37. The reason I'm even saying this again is because my emphasis was never the German states, like the governmental entities or borders and battles. And luckily, some books I found don't have that emphasis either, except basically all my books started with Otto I. Nothing before last episode had much to do with Germany, apparently. But obviously, I beg to differ. And even today, lazy historians or documentaries might call Otto I the first king of Germany, or the first Holy Roman Emperor. Eh, that's kinda lazy. And last time, we established the Ludolfinger Saxons, the Saxon dynasty, and now begins the real history of the Kingdom of Germany, finally. So, just to clarify, when does East Francia stop and the Kingdom of Germany begin? First of all, it's important to note that they overlap. W whoa, what? Right, because East Francia is also still a thing at this time in the 10th century. One concept we need to start getting comfortable with when we start talking about the Holy Roman Empire is that a place can be more than one official thing on paper at one time. Surprise! You didn't see that coming, did you? So we have already been in the Holy Roman Empire for a while now, actually, in a sense, for several episodes, maybe even five. For instance, East Francia was referred to for centuries after Otto the Great, who, Otto the First, Otto the Great, that's going to be the focus of this episode. Um, but East Francia lives on. So Otto the Second, Otto the Third, they, they also rule East Francia on paper in a way. And Henry the Fowler, that's last episode, he was called a German king, but himself, he humbly fought that honor. Now, Otto I was a German king and emperor. As, as the, the lazy historians will tell you, I shouldn't pick on them. That's just kind of the, the, the way that they were seen for a long time. Like, historians will tell you that that's not, that that's you know, way oversimplistic. Um, but that's how it often gets seen as. Like, Otto I is just kind of the first uh, in many ways. 
But uh, at the same time, Otto himself also saw East Francia and West Francia part of a larger Frankish kingdom, really. So I want to emphasize that. So that structure, that Frankish kingdom had not gone away, that Frankish empire. So when we talk about Holy Roman Empire again now, it's still like the Frankish empire is still sort of a thing. Maybe it was to keep a claim on French lands as emperor, uh, but whatever the reasons, East Francia, maybe it was just more poetic in some contexts. But for this episode, we are still talking about East Francia, the kingdom of the Germans. And also, we truly start the history of the Holy Roman Empire. Anyway, in the last episode, we left things chronologically with Henry I, Henry the Fowler, of the Ludolfinger Saxons. And he ordered his son Otto to be his successor. And with that, I introduce Otto I, who will be known as Otto the Great. And just so you know what time frame we're talking, he was born in 912, and he died 973. So the whole kind of, you know, basically the span of the uh, the 10th century. But we're still going to talk f- about quite a few events before we get to the, you know, the year 1000. Um, but he was German king from 936, 936. If you got to remember a date, there's a couple of dates just so that later, um, it's, yeah, so it's kind of not all that just relative. Um, he was Holy Roman emperor from 962. So about 30 years later, um, until his death in 973. And Otto would also marry an English royal princess to kind of cement his, royal dumb himself. And remember in the last episode, I said Henry the Fowler just considered himself one among many, fought a coronation by the church, so he kind of, you know, didn't want that to happen, and just simply ruled through his system of stem duchies. And even though Henry was recommended by the Frankish king Conrad, it still wasn't guaranteed. The dukes still elected him in the end. That was all last episode. Um, but for his succession, he does something very different. When, when Henry was king, he he really wanted to... This is kind of one thing that makes the later Saxon Germany... Because uh, the Franks will come back, but it makes Germany different from the earlier Frankish Empire. And that is the succession. I mean, that already kind of was was now slightly changing. But Henry really started to sit down and um, sit and think about the term monarch, like as as a reigning system. So even though Henry the Fowler was elected king, he made it clear that Otto would be the next king. And he marries him, you know, to an Anglo-Saxon princess, like I just said. And this is, um, so he, ma- he married King Ethelstan's sister, Edith, just to show that, that there was still some sort of relationship between the Anglo-Saxons and um, these, uh, like, the continental Saxons, the, the proper Saxons, I guess. And um, on the 8th of August, all German tribes elected their king, and he was crowned. So there was still, a, you know, a, an election, a nominal one at least. And he was crowned by the Archbishop of Mainz, who, who the previous Archbishop of Mainz had offered to do this for Henry, and, you know, he turned it down. But now uh, they saw that, okay, yeah, so, you know, Otto really needs to be king. They need to cement his rule. And now, the very beginning of last episode, I said, remember Henry's first son, Tankmar, Tankmar. Um, he had a, Otto I had a older half-brother, Tankmar. 
and he did not appreciate this, obviously. Um, Nalto the first has to go uh, fight the Bohemians, the Vens, the Wens, those Slavs that live, you know, kind of in central Germany and what is today central Germany, but like Prussia sort of. And uh, he, uh, Tankmar tries to assassinate Otto the first, doesn't succeed. And Otto forgives him, but but really the old Frankish way is done. So the the old splitting up the empire by different sons is is gone. So Otto is the sole ruler, and and they really they they bring back an old Greek word. the 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 Greek word is monarch. So you know we we say monarch in English today, but we see this in writing again. They embrace this as like in Germany they said the the head of state like we're introducing a monarchy. Um, and what, what East Francia was before, and I mean, what it still kind of is in the kingdom of Germany, it's so murky, you know, the dukes just come together and elect somebody and this and that. Um, but they really want to set up a, a, you know, now Henry wants, is thinking of a dynasty, like he wants his son to rule and he wants one son to rule. So different than the Franks. Um, and I talked about a lot of that last episode too. Um, but yeah, so in, in, again, in stark contrast to Henry himself, who didn't even want the Bishop of Mainz to crown him, um, Otto goes all out. He has the Königssalbung, the uh, the royal anointment. So it's not just the coronation, but this became important. So some rituals are now laid down for later coronations for the first time. And we see a precedence for later uh, coronations and like the the way a monarch is, def I'm, I'm really emphasizing this because it's important. It, it changes now in history. The way that the Germans specifically define what a monarchy is and what a monarch is, okay? That, um, now we're still talking about the king, not the Holy Roman Empire, emperor yet, that's not for another 30 years, but they're already saying the bishop is crowning him king and he's getting a royal anointment, which is kind of, um, you know, so the, the king is blessed by bishops as bishops are blessed and therefore they rule with God's will, okay? And, and they, this definitely sets them apart from other dukes. That is a difference from Henry I, who didn't want none of this. That's why I'm pointing this out. Here's the generational gap in the in the saxon world um here's where he goes full king he wants the whole nine yards he's trying to really cement his rule make it really hard why is he doing this he's trying to make it really hard for his brothers like tunkmar um to be pretenders to the throne that's that's where this all comes in if if this sounds jumbled or confusing like there's a there's a reason i'm putting this all in this order okay the first step in making the throne not a whimsical thing that the sons fight over, but something in and of itself, like the throne, one title, one king. And I'm going to also mention the old medieval symbols of monarchy. I might have mentioned them before. I kind of feel like I have, but those are about to change. And that's why I'm going to bring them up. If you see old portraits and yeah, you're going to, you know, you'll whatever if you could do a google image search for henry the fowler for instance you'll see the old medieval symbols of monarchy is a diadem okay for the crown and then a sword and a scepter sword and a scepter is really important the old even the old germanic kings it was like horseback and sword that's that's what was made you king if you couldn't fight if you couldn't ride then that basically disqualified you from being king um, and then the scepter is just, you know, a royal symbol. Okay, keep that in mind. Sword, scepter, diadem, because they're about to change. So that's why. So keep those images in your mind. Now, at the age of 23, Otto assumed his father's position as Duke of Saxony, 
and then king of Germany. And his coronation was 7th, or I, I thought I said 8th, but whatever, 7th or 8th of August, um, 936, like I said, in Charlemagne's former capital of Aachen by the Archbishop of Mainz. His name was Hildebert for the curious. And though he was Saxon by birth, Otto appeared at the coronation in Frankish dress. This is why I did that whole spiel at the very beginning about East Francia and blah, blah, blah. That wasn't blah, blah, blah. So Otto I still believed himself to be a part of this East Frankish realm. Absolutely. And he wore this Frankish dress um, to to really, you know, to, to be in line with tradition. The Many of the tra traditions that already existed, the traditions that were started by Charlemagne. He wanted to be in Charlemagne's footsteps and in his shadow in Aachen, wearing Frankish clothes. And it was also kind of a, a power play because he didn't just say that he was king of Saxon realms and he was the, the Duke of, of Saxony, but he was really also a Frankish king. And he was therefore over the Duke of Lotharingia. So his his role as the true successor to Charlemagne, whose last heirs in East Francia died out in 911. That was kind of um, the last Frankish. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that last episode. And at the coronation, according to Vidukint of Cordvi, he had the four other dukes. And I watched a documentary where this was like represented and kind of reenacted and it was kind of neat. So there's the, the dukes of Franconia, Swabia, Bavaria, and Lorraine. And this is neat. Um, so they act as his personal attendants. Arnulf I of Bavaria was like his marshal, his stable master. Hermann I, Duke of Swabia, as his cupbearer. And Eberhard of Franconia as his steward or... Uh, the Orson Shawl, Orson, yeah, um, yeah, Stuart, and Gilbert of Lorraine as Chamberlain. And by performing these traditional services, the dukes kind of signaled that, you know, their obedience, their cooperation with the new king and the reign, and clearly also showed their submission to his reign. This aspect of making, like, honorable servants out of noblemen, I mean, these are the highest in the land, the, the, these are the four highest dukes below the king, and, and to show that being, they're near the king, so there's an aspect of trust there, but also as his servants. So in an, you know, this is a very interesting custom. And it's also like the reason I, this stuck out in my mind is because I, I know this from a video game specifically. I forget if it was like Crusader, Crusader Kings or uh, Europa Universalis, but one of those two. Um, and you can give these titles to people and it, you know, earns brownie points, whatever it is. Um, yeah, anyways, so, so he was now king. Now, the person that was not okay with any of this was Tankmar, the son of Henry the Fowler and a nun from his, basically his first pre, um, marriage, Henry's first marriage that the church got annulled from the last episode. And Tankmar, along with Arnulf of Bavaria and Eberhard of Francia, rebel. A year later, okay, so fast forward, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to put any sound effects in, but a year later, um, long story short, Tankmar stands prisoner in front of Otto. His gold chain bling is removed and he's run through with a spear. Okay, I might go back to this. I might have some flashbacks here, but that's long story short. That's what happens. Um, now, his younger brother, Heinrich, Henry in English, 936, a couple of years later, is defeated. And the chronicles tell of an Otto that was losing his grip on his kingdom at this point, but won through a miracle because, now according to the Chronicles, he uh, prayed real hard. 
And then two of the main noblemen killed each other. And Otto remained safe throughout this little drama and was able to consolidate power even more through this, like through this, you know, power, this, the vacuum of his noblemen underneath him. Um, he was able to step in and, you know, take the reins of the, of the kingdom. And his brother Heinrich was made Duke of Lothringen, then Duke of Bavaria, practically meaning he's basically a king too. So this is a slow transition of, you know, being a one German king. But but officially on paper, he's there, he's a duke, subservient to the king, um, but very independent, very autonomous. And Otto now sees another pa power vacuum emerging, namely in Italy, when a king there dies, and he goes for it. Italy. So starts a big new chapter in Otto I's life and this episode. Adelheid, the widow of the king of Italy, who is basically locked up in Garda Castle, which is uh, of the, the Burg von Garda uh, on the Gardasee. Yeah, she'll play a huge role. Like Otto, to kind of flash forward a little bit here, um, he learned to read. He even learned a bit of Italian because of Adelheid and his new conquest uh, later in life. But um, and he even came into court saying, Bon man, good morning. Um, now they get hitched, Adelheid, and marched to Pavia and had himself crowned King of the Franks and Langobards, just like Charlemagne. So it's Otto who first really truly accepts the German king title and wears it in the Frankish Carolinian fashion, let's say. Like Henry the Fowler didn't, you know, he was much more humble about this whole thing. And, uh, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, so Otto followed this tradition much more than his father is what I'm saying. And 26 years later, jump ahead again, um, the kingdom of Germany is superseded by the Holy Roman Empire. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. Sorry, but I have there's there's an order to the madness in my head. I've, I've been accused of jumping around, but there's a reason I write it like this. Uh, I want to give you a whole picture kind of as it... Yeah, I want to... Yeah. Uh, but anyways, so... Um, yeah, now the... <laughs> Here's what, okay, here's why I'm jumping ahead. So this title already existed. The Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, some guy held that title. It didn't just disappear. In Henry the Fowler's lifetime, someone in Italy held the title. So the, um, you know, Charlemagne ruled Italy, Rome, all that as the Holy Roman Emperor or whatever. And there were some emperors after that. And then as the Holy Roman Empire got split up, somehow some Frankish um, king in Italy ended up with the Holy Roman Emperor title. And it didn't really mean much. He didn't have any influence over Germany, and he didn't have that much influence over Italy. It was, um, but, but that title existed. So, yeah, that's why I'm kind of flashed, you know, forwarding ahead of here a little bit. So, um, all these titles eventually, long story short, come to Otto and the kingdom of Germany only lasts like 30 years before it is also the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire officially and on paper. And also, and the, the kingdom of Germany is a subset of that geographically. It's Germany. The Holy Roman Empire includes like uh, Northern Italy, for instance. Okay. So he keeps all those titles just like the Franks before him do. So he starts collecting titles. He's now King of the Lombards, Holy Roman Emperor, King of the Germans. Okay. So on. So by in that light of reasoning, Charles the Great, was the first Holy Roman Emperor, but I've argued against that pretty strongly in previous episodes. So anyways, okay. Uh, so in that case, this was just a different dynasty of that state, the state of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire now is Otto's empire. So the title existed since Charlemagne, but the title wasn't combined with the actual empire again until Otto the First. And after that, 
Um, it was kept by various German noble families, which is the focus of the next several episodes. We're not done yet, don't worry, but just to keep it into keep this into context, it really becomes a German institution, and the Holy Roman Empire is synonymous with medieval and early modern Germany. Not Rome at all, really. Although, obviously, I've been trying to point out that Rome is an important part of the story to keep track of. Okay, so Otto the King, not yet emperor. Back up. Quedlinburg. Otto goes to King Heinrich's crypt to pray. And they even start to call him the prayer. The, uh, yeah, uh, Otto the prayer. And he first gained experience as a military commander when the German kingdom fought against Slavic tribes on the eastern border. So among other others, the Vens. And the Hungarians did not just disappear last episode when Henry the Fowler defeated them. Um, he put a he put a rest to the major incursions in, in his lifetime, but uh, they come back in this time. And Otto needs to gather an army, and he gathers a combined German army, very much like his father. And Hungarians had been coming back. They had been burning churches and cities again, at least like towns and villages. And Otto has a major victory of a battle I'm going to talk about in a second. And after the victory comes to Aachen for this coronation. Um, and before I come back to the Hungarians in detail, just to give me a couple minutes, I want to give you the lay of the land. Um, this is the time of Fluchtburg, Vela. And what I always think is interesting is I like to keep tab of the language. Like if you did have a time machine, what would it sound like? What would you actually hear? And the dialect at this point is the still, the old, old High German, which I've pointed out several times, no one really spoke. Um, everyone spoke their own dialect, whether it was Swabian or Bavarian or Frankish or Saxon. But, you know, if you put those all together on paper, something existed that was called old, that now academics called Old High German just to make sense of what it all was. Um, and we have about 4 million people living in the Kingdom of Germany at the time. And in this time, so especially now slowly coming back to the Hungarians, um, what I wanted to say before I really talk about the Hungarians is describe that Otto um, founded some more marks in this time. And do, do we remember what a mark is? I brought this up before because the Franks also did likewise. Uh, so it's a like a march in English. Um, someone that rules a mark would be a marquis, like Marquis du Sade, or in German, a markgraf, like Denmark, for instance. That was the, the mark against the Danes, you know, perhaps. Now, so a mark is a piece of land, a territory, like a county or a um, duke, like a duchy, let's say. And yeah, like a duke rules a duchy, a marquis is, uh, you know, rules a mark. And it's usually established in a border area. That's what a marquis is. So a marquis is like someone that's ready to defend the kingdom. It's a defensive buffer. Okay. And a marquis is someone that's trusted, that's put there a competent warrior, a competent, um, you know, army leader kind of thing, a general. So it might not even be part of the core state, but it's established as a special border security zone. Okay. Now, I just wanted to say that mark that Otto founded new marks, marches, and wanted to make sure that you knew what I meant by that when I, when I said that. And the reason I wanted to say that is because this is the time when Brandenburg, later the very center of Prussian power, and that of the Hohenzollern dynasty, who that's, that's foreshadowing a lot here, this was founded as a Saxon mark. 
Because when I talk about the Prussians, that's like Prussian becomes synonymous with like the most German of Germans. And this was not a thing now. Old Prussian was a Baltic language or Slavic language. Um, Baltic maybe. So, but, but it became the center. So this is like just now being founded as a Saxon mark. Saxon. It's the very edge of the kingdom. And then beyond that, it's just wild um, Slavs and just, you know, unmarked territory. And this, this Brandenburg, this mark was to fend off the, the, the local Slavs, basically. And we get Magdeburg. It was one of the greatest German cities until its destruction of the Thirty Years' War. Otto starts building. Otto the Builder. Um, now, in this time, okay, Edita dies. He marries again. Uh, he has a son, Luidolf. Um, he was actually, yeah, he's already a, a grown up at his father's coronation in Aachen. Sorry. Um, okay. But now I want to get back to the Hungarians. 953. Hungarians are back. And this is a fun story. And that's why I needed to set all this stuff up. Luidolf, his son, decides that he's not getting enough from his father, his, his heritage or whatever early enough. And he does a very controversial move. It's like throughout all of Europe, this was like, people were like, oh, he what? Luidolf not only betrays his father and commits treason, but he goes to pay off the Hungarians, these pagan heathens, these dangerous plunderers from the east. Luidolf meets with their leader and decides to let them through his land um, and goes all the way to Rostal near Nuremberg, where father and son meet in battle. And Luidolf flees, loses, Otto wins. And, go, and uh, you know, Ludolf goes to Regensburg. And L Regensburg is almost burnt to the ground at this time. And Ludolf has to flee again. So Regensburg, Regensburg has a lovely, interesting history. I love it. I've been there several, many, 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 many times. Um, flees again to Sovelston and again surrenders to Otto. They shake hand. It's, it's kind of like the prodigal son it returns. It's, uh, they, I guess they kind of make up for now. Um, and now it's Otto's turn to like turn and fight the Hungarians proper. And he has a very famous, this is a legendary battle of Lechfeld, the victory on the Lechfeld. And Vidukind of Corvi has uh, spies coming back and reporting that the enemy was near. Otto ordered his troops to quickly get ready for battle the following day and the next morning they stood and gave and gave each other the peace kiss and swore the king and each other to stand by the by each other's side and with their high felt banners felt zeichen they they moved out of the camp the army slowly moved through the rough terrain and this was a rough terrain because they didn't want to give the enemy any opportunity with their arrows. Last episode, I described the Hungarians a little bit. They have these um, composite bows these and these tactics of, you know, shooting with archers and then fleeing. So the, the, so the Germans picked this rough terrain to meet. And the second and third Zug, I don't know, uh, divisions, I'm going to call them probably incorrectly. The second and third were Bavarians. The four, fourth were Franks. The fifth, the strongest, were Otto's, where that's where Otto himself rode, and that was the Saxons. The sixth was the Swabians. And then the eighth, we have a thousand Bohemian knights whose weapons were 
quote, better than their luck, whatever that means. And um, with them, with the 8th and the Bohemians, were all the luggage. Bohemians, by the way, are Slavs, not Germans. And the Hungarians didn't quite follow Otto's plan because, you know, they didn't even know it. And they, they crossed the Lech instantly without hesitation and went around Otto's men and shot their rear with arrows, just encircled them completely. And they attacked the rear and just just it was a massacre screaming and bludgeoning just part of the rear guard others of the rear guard were captured and all the provisions just scattered and just whole groups fled and Alto was kind of with the, the seventh oh they smashed into the seventh and sixth that's the swabians uh, divisions when Otto saw that they had come from two directions basically and sent the fourth after the hungarians they were able to free the prisoners got the Hungarians pl plunder back, their own provisions, basically, and set the now overladen Hungarians to flee. So this kind of worked out. By giving the Hungarians an, an early victory, the Hungarians had too much to carry and were and lost their main advantage, which is which which was what they were that they were fast. That's that's kind of what happened. So Otto slaughtered them. And now is where he returns to Aachen in triumph, which is what I skipped ahead to earlier. Um, he gives this this great speech. Um, he has the Holy Spear with him, which again I you know talked about last episode. And yeah, he he's, you know stormed off at the head of the army and it becomes legend, of course. Um, yeah, he's he's just both the best field commander and soldier. At, at first, the Hungarians kind of hold fast, but soon saw others fleeing and just fear struck them, according to the chronicles. And, and Hungarians fled on now tired and, you know, burdened horses, and they were surrounded by the warriors and just slaughtered. So it was just, it was, in the end, it was a, a Saxon slaughter, uh, you know, yeah, instead. Otto went to Rome and held a triumph, and here he was hailed as Imperator. He had an honest-to-God Roman triumph, as of the day days of old. And later historians would call this battle the birth of Germany. And, yeah, okay, um, you know, others said previous ones were and etc but okay sure um the the banner one of the banners that they fought under of the banner of of the archangel uh, michael is still around as a relic 955 so two years later we have augsburg the spear is there too the holy lance the the spear of destiny all that um which i talked about so many times now but yeah anyways it's yeah there's so many great stories um now the the otto the the germans they have thicker shields, heavier chainmail. They're definitely like more heavier Frankish knights and soldiers than these quick uh, Hungarians. And this battle also, Otto's line, now they kind of know what they're dealing with. So they hold fast with really thick shields and do not break after the signature hail of arrows on the Hungarians. And the, the, now this actually surprises the Hungarians because the, the Ottonians, the Saxons, the Germans, whatever you want to call them now, the Germans just stand there <clears throat> and take it and don't flee. And then Otto and his forces charge and it becomes a close combat where the lightly armored and, you know, armed Hungarians just don't stand a chance. And 961, Otto uses this momentum from these victories and crosses the Alps 
This is why I emphasized the Merovingians and Karl Martel, Pepin the Short, Charlemagne, and now Otto I. They follow this entrenched tradition, okay? He's just one of now like the sixth person to do this or whatever, not even counting the previous, um, you know, the Visigoths and Ostrogoths and all those people when, when Rome still stood as an empire. But this is just one in the last, the dozenth person to now do this and cross the Alps south into Italy. And 961, he had conquered the kingdom of Italy and extended his realm's borders to the northeast and south. Okay, now, John the Twelfth call for help. He's now 50 years old. And Otto must figure, hey, it's about time to be Kaiser, right? Like, just like um, Charles the Great, he gets a, a plea from the Pope, help me, you know, people, the enemies are at my gates. Um, and he does, he crosses the Alps with an army, and none of the Italians like any of this, just like the Franks before him. It's just, you know, deja vu all over again. But the Pope crowns him. So just like Charlemagne, as he was crowned Emperor of the Romans in 800, Otto was crowned 962 by John Pope Twelfth in Rome. That crown, I mentioned, you know, I, I gave some of the history. It's in the Vienna Hofburg, the Viennese, you can see it in Vienna, basically. Um, it's that one. You should look it up. Um, it has a picture of David and Solomon, not the Iron Crown. This is one I, so separate, don't get confused now. This is the Imperial Holy Roman Empire Emperor Crown. It has a picture of David and Solomon. It's pretty neat. Um, I watched a documentary out there on it, but it, I'm, it might have been in German now that I think about it. Um, anyways, it says that on Latin, it says, Through me reign the kings. And until 1806, every Kaiser wore this crown. Even the heads of the Second Reich and technically even the heads of the Third Reich because this crown uh, on their heads, yeah, um, at least once for a photo op like Himmler, you can see him, if you, you can Google this, like Himmler wearing the Reich's crown, the Kaiser crown. Um, but I'm, we can just pretend that never happened. I'm, I'm cool with that. I just, yeah, Ugh, man. Uh, the German eagle also goes back to this time, like Henry the Fowler, but really Otto I. Otto I really uses the insignia of that black eagle on the yellow background, that, that German eagle. Bam, that's Otto I, Otto the Great. Um, Adelheit, I know I said she already died. I'm really jumping around. Um, but he was at Otto's side when he was crowned emperor. She was crowned empress. This marks the first time an empress was crowned in Europe. Um, so yeah, Adelheid is Europe's first empress. Now, Pope and Emperor. This should be, this should really be a regular segment. Quote, Pope and Emperor. Uh, because I'll keep saying this. It's a, an ongoing relationship over the generations. Now you know what I'm talking about. Now this is like the 10th time I talk about the Pope and Emperor, you know, together. And it was Pope John Twelfth that crowned him, renewing the relationship between Emperor and Pope. And it was the Pope that needed Otto's help and offered the coronation. Uh, John, John the Twelfth is an interesting fellow, but I'm sure he'll get mentioned on the history of the papacy at some point, or already is. So moving on, we have a new tradition. No longer, okay, here we go. No longer is the king portrayed with shield and lance. 
we get new imperial or even royal symbols. The crown scepter, sure, that stays, but we get the Reichsapfel, this imperial globe, the little orb with a cross on it that they hold. If you, I mean, again, just Google image search some, you know, some German king or um, uh, emperor Kaiser, and you'll see them holding holding a scepter and a globe now, this little orb, this little sphere. These are there are new symbols. That's what I mentioned, like, I don't know, half hour ago. Um, here they are. We get new symbols. And this is what we see going forward. That's what. So now you can kind of date this. Um, after the 950s, 960s, whatever, we get orb and scepter. If you see sword and scepter, you know it's pre-950. There you go. That's actually, I think that's that's something useful. If you're looking at a portrait and you're like, who the heck could this be? Well, are they holding a sword or that little orb thing? That's that's uh, That'll give you a clue. Um, many, many other things will give you clues too, but <laughs> that's one. Okay, anyway, so um, it's kind of, okay, now he's an emperor, and so he does this on purpose. This is kind of reminding of antiqu antiquity. This is something that Germans love to do. Uh, this is a German tradition of wanting to remind of antiquity, of uh, Roman imperial authority, including frontal portraits. So where the emperor just looks upon you, is looking at you from the painting. That's, you know, he's looking at you, the subject, and he's radiating his majesty. That's that's why those portraits are creepy. That's ex that's on purpose. That, that goes back to, like, Roman, you know portraits in a way. Yeah. But again, the Roman citizens thought all of this was horribles. They thought this was horrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were, again, the Titans, the the Teutons, the Teutonic, uh, the, the evil Germanic folk are at the door again and, you know, have invaded and we have a Germanic king. That's what they kind of thought. So, you know, every, everything has, every coin has two sides, I guess. Um, but yeah, anyways, so you can go see the crown in Vienna if you're, you happen to be in that direction ever. And yeah, um, now also, okay, so Sardinia, Corsica, Central Italy, all confirmed upon the Pope. This was, the Pope was now a secular ruler also. Pepin the Short did that before and Charlemagne kind of confirmed that, but not really. But yeah, so he's definitely, this is where the Vatican City kind of comes from. It's, it's confirmed again, but much bigger. It's Corsica, Sardinia, those two islands that are, uh, one today is French, one today is Italian. And then, you know, Central Italy, that was all just belonged to the Pope. So the Pope could field a small army. The Pope had, you know, small secular power, all that stuff. We've mentioned all that before. Alto the first confirms all that. Okay, now. Anyways, um, what the Pope was not expecting was, this is this kind of shocked, surprised the Pope, was that Otto, like many Germans, liked Italy, and uh, he decided, you know, he decided to stay. In Otto's case, he stayed 10 years altogether, actually until his death. He just, from his coronation, he's like, I'm going to kick it here in Rome and rule from Rome. Not Rome, uh, but in Italy. And he, he took his role as emperor of the Romans seriously, which the Pope didn't really expect. The Pope thought, just like previous German emperors, they'd come across the Alps, get, you know, crowned in in uh, Rome. They would do a favor for the Pope, norm, you know, normally just secure his papal reign, and then go back over the Alps. But Otto liked it, and he stayed, and he set up his residence in Ravenna, in the old uh, Theodorichstadt, the uh, the Visigoths, that old, that old thing. So Pope shows Otto a forgery from around 800, 
this is Charlemagne's time, supposed to be from Constantine in the 4th century, but again, it's a forgery, gifting the Vatican to the Pope. This is Sylvester I trying to pull a fast one, by the way. And even the purple robe, etc., making the Pope kind of emperor, like there's imperial symbols, really, supposedly given to them by Constantine IV. And that's why Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople, you know, to give the Pope Rome, basically. But a deacon let Otto know that it was a forgery. And Otto was a bit heavy-handed in Rome after that. So that really, that kind of blew up in their in their face. Um, so again, okay, so just to, to let you know what's happening with the whole strengthening the dynasty uh, to set up the next couple episodes here, um, there's some strategic marriages, some very interesting ones coming up, but like personal appointments, Otto installed members of his family to the kingdom's most important like duchies. So it goes from a Frankish kind of realm to more and more of a Saxon realm for sure. More of these noblemen are now Saxon, not Frankish. You know, slowly but surely, I would say. That's that's safe to say. Um, yeah, and by doing this also, in, in just the previous generation, Henry's time, instead of having these stem duchies, you know, Bavaria, Franconia, Swabia, whatever, that were really equal to the king, now they were all subservient that owed him a favor because they were duke or whatever because of him. Um, he defeated some of these in battle like the Bavarian one. And, you know, he was at their mercy. And so now, I mean, yeah, he was definitely, they were definitely under him now. So all of this stuff happened. He really did cement, you know, had a very strong reign, I would say. Yeah. So if I had to call someone the first king, eh, he's more of a contender than his father. But again, I mean, yeah, his father was also a king of Germany. So just a lesser one. I don't know. King of the Germans, I should say. Um, Otto also, it's also important to note in this time is he did kind of transform the Roman Catholic Church in Germany to strengthen the royal office and subject its clergy to his personal control. So this balance between state and church always goes back and forth. In Otto's time, Otto had the, the, the leverage, let's say for sure, having, have, you know, having, have helped the Pope, that kind of thing. And another really interesting thing to note about Otto's reign is it's not just, you know, he goes to Aachen, he goes to Rome, he goes here, he's, a, he's in battles. He might, I don't know if he breaks the record, he might not travel as much as um, Charlemagne. I mentioned that Charlemagne, like he carried his court in his pocket, like he carried his court uh, with him. And often it was by, by horseback. And Otto I, I would also like to paint that same picture. Up to 180 days a year, Otto I, you might find him in the saddle, going from some town to another. The court could be you catching up with the kings on a baggage train, all sitting on your horses, deciding how to solve this or that issue, how to rule the country between Quedlinburg and Aachen or between, you know, Ravenna and Rome, whatever it was. And I'll come back to this here and there, but this was really a German king tradition from Charles the Great through Heinrich and now Otto. So he just, I want to, we're still doing that. We're not, we still don't have a capital city yet. Kind of, eh, I'm about to contradict myself here. Um, but I want to emphasize this because I'll bring it up again in the Salian dynasty when thousands of people along with the necessary livestock are on the move. Like it, it's, it hinders the local economy when the king and his entourage stop by. Hundreds of people swing through town. It's just like, it's, 
I mean, that's that's a picture you need to have in your head if you want to have an accurate picture of history in the 10th century and and before, but also now. It's just on the move. King is in the saddle, not on a throne. King is on a horse half of the year, half the time. And are we talking castles? And mostly still talking wooden palisades because, you know, we're in the medieval period, getting into the high medieval period slowly but surely. So, but still in Germany, mostly wooden palisades against the Hungarians at this point because they're, they're moving east, you know, setting up the mark, the march of Brandenburg, for instance. So, you know, just very rudimentary defenses still. But the great German medieval cities are just coming to be. There's, a, again, a sort of Ottonian renaissance, um, just to kind of stick another nail in the coffin of what people sometimes used to call the Dark Ages. Eh, forget about that. We have that, you know, medieval ages, uh, medieval time. There's another renaissance happening, a sort of limited cultural renaissance of the arts and architecture. Um, and, okay, so... Otto's last years were marked by conflict with the papacy and struggles to stabilize power over Italy. Again, he was reigning from Rome at this time, so he's really like the the Italian northern Italian ruler. And Otto sought to improve relations with the Byzantine Empire. This is really important. We're almost done with this show. This is important for the next episode. So. Uh, Pay attention really quick for another couple minutes. We're almost done here. Now, the Byzantine Empire. Now, we have a German emperor ruling from Ravenna, ruling from Italy, and he wants to make peace with the Byzantines. He wants to really call himself Roman, so he needs to, you know, and the Byzantines are the real Romans, so he needs to make this all jive. Byzantines are not happy with his claim to, uh, you know, to emperorship and his realm's further expansion to the south, you know, of Italy. And to resolve this, there is a Byzantine princess, Teofanu, who marries his son, Otto II, who's the focus of, well, part of the focus of next episode. uh, The focus of next episode, spoiler alert, is the end of the world. Uh, millennialism. The the people thought that the world was going to end in the year 1000. It's the it's the Y1K problem, I guess, if you will. That's the real focus of next episode. It's going to be way cooler than just Otto the second, Otto the third. But we're really. I mean, this is the 970s when when uh, Otto dies. So 960s. Um, you know, he's Otto the second gets married in 972. So now we're really is 30 years before the end of the world. Um, Anyways, yeah, you can actually, uh, you can, I guess you could Google image search their wedding certificate. It's a beautiful medieval manuscript, really, really neat, like purple, I mean, it has a background color. It's really cool, like gilded and, you know, lettering and um, yeah, Teofanu and Otto II's marriage certificate. If you want to Google image search that, that it's pretty freaking cool. Um, Anyways, okay, so Otto returns to Germany in August 72 and dies in Memleben in 73. He does not die in Rome. And Otto II becomes, succeeds him as emperor. Otto I, so he crosses the Alps, retires in Germany that last year. And real quick summary. In this First Reich, 
we see Otto I start to move east, push out the Slavs from the Elba to the Oder, and in the north against the Danes. I didn't really talk about most of that stuff, his military campaigns. Um, I just don't care. I'm just, ugh, I want to move on. Aachen is sort of the capital, basically, at this time. And um, I've mentioned Aachen. If, yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, I'll bring it up again. Uh, Otto I, I want to focus on some cities, too. But Otto I was able to consolidate power by having close relatives fill the nobility roles, which I said, as well as fill the bishopric. Uh, in the, the towns of Köln, Cologne, Mainz, and Trier with his relatives. And it's a good thing he had so many relatives, I suppose. And in the north and east, Otto makes big strides in founding new bistum, uh, bistuma, uh, bishoprics. To these belong Schleswig, which is in the north, Rippen, Aarhus, Havelberg, Oldenburg, which is Lübeck, also all in the north, really on the, you know, still cl close to the German border today. So he's really making the German border what it is today in some places. Um, Brandenburg, like I said, Meissen, Zeitz, Merseburg, and the Archbishopric of Magdeburg. These are all during this time. The Danes, Bohemians, Poles, all recognized Otto as ruler of Germany, and the French could only control their vassals with Otto's help. So he was the strong, I mean, even the West Frankish realm needed to kind of knock on his door and solicit a little bit of his help now and then. Okay, he goes to Italy marries the king's widow Adelheid, thereby inheriting Upper Italy. His second trip in 962, the Pope John Twelfth crowned him Emperor Kaiser. Otto I is buried in the Dom, the cathedral in Magdeburg. Okay, there's the summary. Next time, we start to see the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of Germany really start to take shape and become a thing. They already are. Now they're just really cementing. It's really a thing now. And a bunch more Ottos, Saxons, Kaisers, on the history of Germany. Not to mention the Y1K problem, millennialism, and the end of the world. And the History of Germany podcast is an Agora Podcast Network member. This month, the podcast of the month is Chris Stewart's The History of China podcast. It's excellent, an excellent podcast. And there are new Bohemican podcast episodes, new Secret Cabinet podcast episodes, and of course, stay tuned for The Saxons Part 4 next time. I'm Travis Dow. This show is free. Please help and spread the word and review us on iTunes. Find us and all of the above at podcastnick.com, podcastnik.com, or on Twitter as, well, at podcastnick or at Germany Podcast. And thanks for listening. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Auf Wiederhören. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.